Managed care. It's a substantial part of the gigantic Medicare program. The Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services figures half of Medicare enrollees gets health care from the Medicare Advantage program. In the words of the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General, the growth of managed care has transformed how the government pays for and covers health care. This is for 100 million people. That's why the IG has made managed care a top priority. To learn more about its new strategic plan, Federal Drive host Tom Temin spoke to the senior advisor for managed care in the OIG's Office of Audit Offices, Carolyn Capesti. And so this is a $400 billion expenditure. Maybe if you would just give us the brief explanation of how managed care is defined under Medicare versus the rest of the care that is paid for. Oh, sure. So managed care, which most of us are familiar with, is an attempt to manage costs and provide better, more coordinated care through a health plan. In the Medicare population, Medicare Advantage has emerged as the predominant form for coverage for beneficiaries. And Medicare Advantage allows beneficiaries to choose a plan to provide their coverage. In turn, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services pay a set amount each month per member per month to the plan to provide that care for people. The plan then takes on the responsibility of setting up a provider network and the plan will then enter into arrangements to pay for the care that the enrollee receives. Again, it adds up to $400 billion a year, the payments for Medicare Advantage. What are some of the issues here that you think the OIG is concerned with and that are driving the strategic plan for auditing it and watching it? Sure. So there are a couple of trends we have observed in this area and that we have done work on. One of them has to do with prior authorization and denials of prior authorizations. And what that amounts to is an enrollee goes to the provider and the provider has to get prior authorization or approval from the plan to provide that service. And we found in our report that in 13% of those cases, plans denied the service that actually met the Medicare coverage rules. The work received some attention, including there's a congressional hearing, legislation was introduced, and CMS is looking at regulatory action. We've also, by the way, seen the same issues in Medicaid managed care, In our work we did on that, we saw that 12 plans had a denial rate of over 25%. That's kind of the opposite, then, of the fraudulent type of activity where people try to get paid for what they did not do, which is another branch of, you know, auditing. This is where they would get paid back if they went ahead and authorized this. So then the angle, then, is the denial of legitimately earned care on the part of the patient here. Uh, Yes, another way to put that is that it's a plan's way to control costs. But in these cases, the enrollees are not receiving services that they potentially need. Got it. So this would be under like a fixed cost system that they're getting reimbursed for. They're trying to give as little service as they can get away with in some of those cases. That could be. Our work did show that, you know, that 13 percent of cases, the plans denied services that should have been covered by Medicare. All right. So in your strategic plan, then, what are the major elements that you're going to be looking at over the next few years and how you're going to go about it? Our strategic plan is we have three main goals. One is to promote access to care, which has to do with things I just talked about. Beneficiaries are enrolled in these programs. They have the right to receive care. They have the right to be able to find a doctor and to be able to get that care. The second is to provide comprehensive financial oversight. There's an incredible amount of money going to the Medicare Advantage program, over $400 billion dollars. And we want to make sure the taxpayers receive value for that and that enrollees receive the care they need. One major part of the financial oversight has to do with how plans are paid, a system called risk adjustment. 
And that just means plans receive a higher amount to cover sicker beneficiaries. That was instituted in order to avoid cherry picking and for plans to be able to cover these people. However, what we've seen is there has been some inaccuracies in that. We've conducted 28 audits of plans and we have identified $377 million in overpayments. That is that the plans could not substantiate that the enrollee did have that condition that they reported for payment. One focus of these audits is what we call high-risk diagnoses, and those are some things that we found to be especially prone for error. And just honing in on those across the audits, we found an error rate of 69%. Yikes. That is, there are certain problems that you know plans need to be looking for and should be addressed. Another similar component in risk adjustment that we've done work on is related to what we call health risk assessments and chart review. And what that means in a health risk assessment, a plan will send a person into an enrollee's home or maybe do it over the phone and assess what conditions that person has. Chart review in a similar vein is going back and looking through the medical record to find diagnoses that were never submitted on claim for payment. But the OIG work has shown that there are 9.2 billion in payments that were solely related to diagnoses reported on health risk assessments or chart reviews. And what that means is there were no other services submitted for the year for that enrollee, which raises some questions. If the diagnosis is indeed accurate, then what is the plan doing to provide services for these beneficiaries? Sure. Yeah. If they had a horrible diagnosis and they only went in for one appointment, you got to wonder, well, what happened with the rest of the patient or was that diagnosis correct? We're speaking with Carolyn Capesty. She is Senior Advisor for Managed Care in the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General's Office of Audit Services. And to execute this audit plan over the next few years, how are you reorganizing? Are you putting more auditors on it? I mean, there's a PowerPoint on it, but there's more to it than a PowerPoint. Sure. We are having coordinated meetings. We're trying to use all of our resources to address this, and we've made it a priority outcome. I will say it is a challenge. As you know, OIG's budget is we only get two cents to oversee every hundred dollars that are spent on HHS programs. Right. So the plan then is maybe just to focus the staff. Here's where we want you to be looking. We're still working through that, but IG Grimm has designated this as a priority for us to focus our resources on. I imagine there's a lot of congressional interest in this also. Yes, there has been more congressional interest as of late, I believe, just due to the sheer increase in enrollment. Managed care has been a popular topic on the Hill. And when you look at the managed care industry, maybe briefly characterize that for us. I mean, there's some large national health care plans that offer Medicare Advantage, but there's a lot of smaller ones. And is it possible to know where most of the issues occur, whether they're large or small, or does that really play a role here? Is that really a factor? That's an interesting question. I think more research would be needed to kind of identify the answers to that question. But again, we've done a lot of work in this area. Another one of our goals is to promote data accuracy and data-driven decisions. And we have found that in some cases, the data simply is not available. The data is incomplete or not even set up for reporting, and that kind of makes it challenging. But still, it must be daunting thinking about the volumes of dollars that you're looking at here. You mentioned in one case there were 9.2 billion payment transactions, and it must be daunting to have these numbers of transactions and dollars to get at the heart of what's happening at the individual level. 
It is daunting, but we have a wonderful experienced staff of auditors, evaluators, and investigators and counselors to really look at what's going on. One interesting thing that our investigators have investigated and discovered is oftentimes there will be fraud schemes to start off in the fee-for-service program, and they later move into the Medicare Advantage program. Once the issue is addressed in one program, it moves to another. There was a nationwide orthotic brace scam, and we saw claims drop 9% for those. But after they stopped submitting them in fee-for-service, the same brace submission of the claim for payment for that increased by 22%. That's another thing to keep in mind is just all the areas where there can be room for fraud, waste, and abuse. Right. Yes. So CMS, HHS has lots of doors and the uh, bad guys will keep trying a door till they can find a way in after you've locked up the last one. There are always emerging areas and that's part of our strategic plan too is that As the program evolves and grows, our oversight has to evolve and grow and become more sophisticated. We take that very seriously to try to keep up and try to identify where the next area of risk will be. Carolyn Capesti is Senior Advisor for Managed Care and the Health and Human Services Inspector General's Office of Audit Services. We'll post this interview along with a link to the strategic plan at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways. And that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did.
did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention of that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America... Well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well, they are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence because really both are required for... um, expansion as a professional, but also into leadership roles? I think so, because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust 
And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, What's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, while I certainly had some skills, I I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, 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 I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. that You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership 
role for this moment, for this decision? Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence. Because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, they see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.